Behind every great artist, there's a great band who help take the music from the studio to the stage. In each episode, I talk with some of the most accomplished and sought-after musicians in the world, delving into the details of their backgrounds, their stories, and their journeys, doing away with the fiction, and getting into the facts. It's not about the hype. It's not about the product. It's about the players. Welcome. Hope everybody's doing good and getting ready for whatever Christmas is going to be in 2020. This double episode is going to be our last for a little while, so hope you enjoy. Earlier in the year, I caught up with my good friend Steve Barney. After a few years in an original band, he converted to the world of Sessions, in which time he's played with legends such as Jeff Beck, Annie Lennox, Anastasia, and lots of other people along the way. Hope you enjoyed this episode. So let's get started. Listen, so I'm here with my good friend, Steve Barney, um, amazing drummer. I haven't spoken to you properly in a little while, man. So thank you for coming on and um, speaking to me, man. Mate, it's a real pleasure. And it's uh, it's really good to hear from you, Kojo. Nice one. Yeah. yeah, I think it's just like I wanted to talk to you and um, everybody really about our kind of experiences and our kind of journeys in music, man. So um, you're somebody that's kind of got an amazing story and um, one of the first people I kind of met doing session music music anyway. You're like one of the first people I kind of remember playing with and meeting. So it's really great to have you on and be great to hear your kind of insights on various things, man. So, um, oh, nice yeah. one. Thanks. So where are you right now, man? What's going on? So I'm in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Uh in my home in Liverpool, England, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a home like a lot of musicians around the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> staying focused and and kind of you know it's a it's an it's an odd time you know for obviously for lots of reasons for everybody. Sure, in, but it's a reflective time as well, and I'm and I'm incredibly fortunate and grateful that while. Many of us don't have, um, maybe aren't exactly clear what the picture is looking forward that I've got many hard drives full of pictures <laughs> and <Yeah. itineraries laughs> where I can actually yeah. be really kind of um, super grateful looking backwards in order to move forwards, if you know what I mean. Um, I've been going through, I've always been someone that really cherishes tours that I've been on and the memories of playing with great musicians like yourself and touring and visiting countries where you never thought you would even, you know, get to, let alone play the show there and have your drum kit, you know, arrive. So um, I've actually used this time to go through, like, the many pictures I've taken over the years and just kind of organise them a bit more and sort of archive and and actually, which is a great process, but also also it's actually quite slow because as soon as you start looking at pictures, it's like you get time capsule back in time to that gig or that memory of those people, which is a really nice thing. So, um, but I'm good, man. You know, um, you know, like, like I say, like everybody, this is a kind of an odd time because of the COVID-19 situation, which is, you know, awful for the world. But thankfully in touch wood, my family is um, safe and well and healthy. And, you know, we're, 
we're all going to get through this, mate, you know? Absolutely. Man, you got a lot of pictures too, man. I've seen a few of them <laughs> going up. It's dope, man. It's kind of like, it's kind of, some of it's like, oh shit, this is, remember when we used to gig? It's like depressing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's so much different stuff that we used to well, be able to do. Well, you, but... you may say it like that. I'm I'm actually looking at myself, looking at the jawline changing over the years. <laughs> <laughs> and, there's, and there's only so many applications and editing tools that can store that. <laughs> and I have to be an honest man and go, well, you know, I either blame gravity myself <laughs> or, uh, you know. But no, it's really great to look back. And man, you know, I, I distinctly remember, you know, getting the call to do the sugar babes thing with you back in 2005 and walking into a room and there you were and there we were and you know off we went with that with that gig for like four years or something you know is that when it was 2005 it was man yeah yeah wow shit i do you know what it's really funny because when people ask me questions about how long have you been doing x y or z i don't really have any like strong I'm, my memory is terrible anyway so it's like for things like that anyway and i just yeah, when you say it like that, that really, 2005, that's crazy, It was, man. yeah. So, man, so anyway, so so you're in Liverpool. You've always, I, I've always known you to um, live in Liverpool, but you're not from Liverpool, are you? Originally, no, I'm from uh, Norwich in Norfolk. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I moved to Liverpool um, in 1994. Oh, okay. So um, quite a long time ago. So I've actually been living in Liverpool longer than my birth home of Norwich, you know. So, um, yeah, I I moved here in 94 to kind of follow my dream of kind of attempting to be a professional drummer. And I joined a band up here, which I was in for six years. So music Um, took you to Liverpool? It did, yeah. The city of music, right? Definitely not comedy or or, uh, football, but (laughs) as the years have gone on, I've, you know, I've been adding some football and comedy to my repertoire. (laughs) As you've heard in Liverpool, right? (laughs) If if you've heard my drum solo, do you know what I'm talking about? But but no, yeah, I literally came to Liverpool to follow, you know, my dream of, um, you know, wanted to be a full-time professional drummer, but not a session drummer. I, I love, I love bands and I always saw myself, as a band drummer and that camaraderie of a band and, you know, and, and I did have that experience for a short while, but, you know, come to sort of 2000 when the band broke up, you know, I've, I found myself in a situation of going or feeling, do I want to, do I want to continue down that band route or, you know, is there something for me in a more of a freelance kind of role, you know, and that's, that's, that's the direction I took. And, sort of thankfully taking me to here we are today talking to you mate all these years later so tell me about the band man how old were you when you kind of got into that and how did you get into the band and what was the kind of idea plan with being the band at that age the band was called bully rag b-u-l-l-y-r-a-g and and they were a heavy crossover band of like rock guitar with kind of funky groove hip-hop drum mm-hmm. and bass kind of stuff with a soulful singer who could sing equal parts kind of you know sort of soulful rock vocals and also rap so it was a really interesting merge of styles and i loved it and that i guess the template of bands that i loved at that time were bands like fishbone mm-hmm. they were coming out of it los angeles and bands like the, you know the chili peppers who were less commercial at that time And, you know, I was really into bands that mixed up styles, I guess. And this was a Liverpudlian version to to me or to my ear. And and I I was looking, I was definitely at a point in my life in 94 where I was ready to kind of 
jumped ship. I was I was working in the clothes shop in Norwich, you know, folding, oh, really? <laughs> folding, folding t-shirts and selling suits and polishing <laughs> shoes. And I and and I, you know, it was a, it was a you know it was a job job, you know. But ultimately, I think I'd taken music as far as I felt I could in Norwich by playing in local bands albeit some really good musicians to play with down there for right. some reason i felt um i didn't want to turn my back on norwich but sometimes in life i think in order to progress you need to move forward and sometimes that might take you to a different city Absolutely. and and not to put on another hat and pretend to be someone you're not i've never tried to be anything other than myself but yeah this band took me to liverpool and it was a you know i saw an advert in um I mean, I'm talking about how, how long ago it was. I mean, I know newspapers still exist these days. but I'll tell you, what the fuck? A newspaper? I was like, what the fuck is that? Like, well, like, well, there was, well, there was no kind of Spotify link or yeah. all kind of stuff emailed to me. It was a, I, I basically saw an advert in a Melody Maker newspaper mm-hmm. or maybe the NME, one or the other. And mm-hmm. there was, I remember it distinctly. It said, Drummer Wanted. Uh, for a, <laughs> drummer wanted for a band, right? Um, uh-huh. um, record deal waiting. It uh-huh. said um, Funkadelic meets Rage Against the Machine. Um, uh-huh. Must be committed and happy. I thought, well, man, <laughs> I love I love Funkadelic and I love Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, and 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 I'll be really happy and and, and basically I'll commit to it. You know, what I mean, and that, that will make me happy because <laughs> it's something that I want to do. Absolutely. So I, I kind of got my friend Johnny to drive me up to Liverpool for an audition. Uh-huh. And sorry, before that, I got sent down a, a vinyl kind of 12 inch EP thing that this band Bullyrag had done. Uh-huh. And uh, it, it blew me away. I loved it. And it kind of, um, yeah. So that in turn took, sort of took me up to Liverpool to audition for them. I, I got the job and um, yeah, the rest is, you know, I sort of, I moved up here and I've stayed here since, you know, and what kind of like what, what was the audition? Was it just playing some of their songs? Were you jamming? Mm. Were you vibing? Like what what was that? I think I had to learn the four songs from the EP, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. were they were good musicians, so it was it was kind of um, it was challenging stuff, but I, it was up it was right up my street, so I was sort of prepared when I went there, and um, I think we may have jammed a little bit as well, but pr- pretty much we played the four songs, and then we went to this kind of bar next door to their rehearsal space. And they offered me the job there. And then I was like, wow, they said, when can you move up? I'm like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. so I had to hand my notice in the, the job, you know, you should, you really should give a month's notice, but yeah, yeah. I kind of went back and I kind of, they sort of said, we really need to make a start as soon as possible, you know? And like, I don't know how it did it, but I, I'm, I told my then boss that, you know, that I'd, you know, like he knew I was a drummer. Uh-huh. And he also knew that how much it meant to me. And I told him, I said, listen, I really hate to let you down, but I've got I'm this gonna... opportunity. Come up. <laughs> I'm, 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 yeah, I am going to let you down. Watch this. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I, uh, I moved up to Liverpool two weeks later and yeah. So, I mean, uh, it wasn't quite what the advert said as far as, you know, the record deal. I thought, I mean, the wording was very clever, you know, the record deal <laughs> waiting because I think 18 months later we were still waiting for a record deal. <laughs> So they weren't actually lying in the in right. the way they said the record deal waiting because you know we were I was definitely waiting for quite a while but yeah, we put right. so much time in the trenches like play, trenches being like rehearsing so much we were sort of we were we were tight mate and we had a lot of energy and it was quite an angsty band for various reasons you know in right, some right. of the personalities but 
Yeah, it was it was a culture shock as well for me to move to Liverpool, and it was it's quite um, it's a very passionate city, you know, for many reasons, you know, and mm-hmm. it, and it and it did feel a little aggressive compared to Norwich when I moved up here. I don't mean every. I think when I first moved here, I think I you know the way I heard scouts talking to each other, I thought everybody was arguing, you know, but then I realised. <laughs> But then I realised that's actually just how they talk. Um, right, right. But also after being here for 26 years, I now realise they actually are arguing. <laughs> <laughs> so the band was kind of the, the the band was quite you know was uh, you know there was there was definitely a bit of angst, but it was great, and we did get signed, uh-huh. and 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 we got we got signed to Polygram um, Mercury Records, and uh-huh. and we made an album, which was a great experience, a massive ex- great experience for me. Um, we had a guy called Chris Hughes uh, mm-hmm. produce it, who's famous for many reasons, but I guess most famous for being the drummer from Adam and the Ants, you know. Oh, wow, okay. yeah. And he then went on to be, you know, a very successful producer, producing, you know, Tears for Fears, like a couple of albums for Tears for Fears. And oh, wow. um, he's, a, he's a great drummer himself. He, he, he produced Paul McCartney, uh Oh, God, so many people I can't even think of. Um, yeah, well, you know, you know, yeah. we got these days Google. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Google Chris Hughes, guys. You'll Google Chris Hughes. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But, so we, had Chris, we had a guy called Gary Langan who uh, Chris brought in, who's a good friend of his, and Gary had a ridiculous CV. He's a member of uh, the Art of Noise, and he was uh, Trevor wow. Horn's kind of engineer and mixer for many years. So you can only imagine what yeah. Gary. And um, so yeah, we made an album. And it was a great experience for me, mate. Um, and but sadly, at that time, maybe alternative rock didn't cross over as well as it kind of did in the latter years. And while we did so many shows, we I think for about eighteen months. So we literally for about eighteen months toured with about nearly every alternative rock kind of hip hop rap band, you know, um, at that time. And we ended up, you know, touring with a you know corn a band called corn which became yeah. a massive band you know around that time and uh, we talked with limp biscuit and you know lots of stuff you know it was a, it was a it was a really good time but coming out of that we ended up kind of um we ended up like a lot of bands kind of in that alternative thing kind of getting shelved because i guess we weren't ultimately selling records like the label needed us to in order to pay back the costs of the uh, the album which we'd made you know sure well because that's like i mean even still like the names you mentioned those are those are heavy hitter people and even the band mm. you're touring with that that's obviously a project that is trying to do something that's not just like pubs and clubs yeah, not that there's exactly. anything wrong with pubs and clubs but you know that's like oh, man. yeah the, the, it, it costs money to do all that shit doesn't it it does yeah. mate so when we got when we got to the end of that sort of um, cycle of touring, we we did do um, demos and stuff for a second album, but unfortunately, that kind of led to a to a, um, a, a kind of a meeting called down to London at one point, you know, and and ultimately they told us that um, due to you know various reasons and unforeseen circumstances, they were going to have to let us go. So I distinctly remember. Uh-huh. Um, like I distinctly remember having the elation and the the tears of joy being signed because to yeah. get signed is a major thing in your life. Like being from a little village in Norwich to get signed and have a record deal was a major achievement. So to me, Absolutely. at that point in my life, I was already successful. Um, 
because obviously success can mean many things depending on the way you look at it. So I was absolutely. So I was elated that I had a record deal, but <laughs> the tears of joy six years later was <laughs> I, I actually cried in the in the pub in London, but because uh, I was so disappointed that we'd put so much time and energy into the band, but that we'd been dropped by the label. But I think also at that time I had a deep gut feeling and knew that. I I personally didn't have what it took to continue with that particular band, and I mm-hmm. just felt that, that was you know sort of best for me to draw a line under that particular chapter in my life, and I just felt that being freelance was the way to was for me was the way I fancied you know going forward in my life. Sure, but like, so with regards to the band, so how were you guys? Obviously, that's amazing. You just kind of you know responded to an ad, and that kind of that kind of dictated the next five to six years of your life, you know, but how were you got, how were you supporting yourself? What was the deal? Were you sort of working as a paid session musician or were you sort of a part of the band? Were you involved in the writing? The, how were you, how were you surviving doing that? So the band got an advance from the record deal and we paid ourselves a weekly wage. Um, mm-hmm. So that's how I survived on a, it wasn't much money. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> right. And that's right, no right. disrespect to the, my band members. I think it's not like we had a, a huge amount of money that we could pay ourselves crazy, you know, um, extortionate wages. But yeah, I sure. remember, I remember, you know, <laughs> I remember thinking, this is, I'm a millionaire in my experiences, but <laughs> my, <laughs> my wallet says different, you know, but, um, <laughs> right, right. but I wasn't, um, I know I wasn't part of any kind of publishing deal or songwriting because many of the songs had been formed and written before I joined. Right, and there right. was quite a strong writing partnership between the guitarist in particular and the and the singer. So they they did the publishing deal. So I wasn't a part of that, and that's a kind of a weird feeling. Even if you know you weren't um, there before when the songs were written, and and I know that can be a bone of contention. Yeah, for, sure. For for lots of bands, it sometimes makes or breaks a band. You know, something like that. But absolutely, I I look back on that um, time. You know. Well, while I would never rejoin that time in my life, you know, mm. um, I look back on it fondly and the musicianship of that band and the way they were and the, the amount of graft they kind of led me to put in, I've, mm-hmm. I'll always be grateful for. But I was ready to move on, you know, and, um, we, you know, um, it was, it was, I wouldn't say like a stereotypical rock and roll band, but there was definitely some partying going on. And there, was <laughs> right, right. there was definitely there was definitely thing. Let's let's just say in the politest way, there was things that made you not go to sleep <laughs> that, were, <laughs> right. that, that were around, or things that would make you talk absolute BS or whatever. And, <laughs> right, and right. while while let's say that I did um I I I did uh, pick from the serving tray on a couple of occasions. <laughs> yeah, right. I right. also and I don't know if I was doing this purposely, but while. I felt in retrospect, looking back on this time, that while the guys were partying and, and, and doing that stuff, I wouldn't say I was networking. I just generally like to meet new people because I think conversation and meeting new people is a, is a well, it's just great, isn't it, meeting, meeting new people and hearing about stuff. So I think I'd, in the time I was in the band, I'd met other producers in the studios where we were working. I mean, mm-hmm. in particular, we worked... Um, towards the end of the album and mixing the album, we worked in Metropolis in Chiswick, which I'm sure you know. Of course, yeah. And there was there was obviously many different studios there and different production suites. So I met a few different people while I was in there. I mean, um, mm-hmm. when I say people, I mean other other producers. And 
I remember when when the bully rag thing had, had broken up, and I was kind of thinking, man, you know, when basically when you've put all your eggs in one basket, and yeah. you ring a, you ring around producers that you've met randomly sort of four years previous or something yeah, and you tell yeah, them that yeah. you're a session musician but you've got no track record <laughs> of being a session musician yeah. all you've got is like they remember the band that you're in and that that crazy liverpool band the right, right, the champagne. Right. um <laughs> you know, i'm not saying i was trying to disassociate myself with the band of course i wasn't you know i was proud yeah, of what yeah. we'd done but i was trying to um i was trying to offer my services in a new light but all you need in, in life, you know, often it's just an opportunity, someone to actually take a chance on you and yeah, not just yeah. because of this previous CV you've got, you know, and I sit here today talking to you really, you know, sort of gratefully sitting on a decent CV of artists and musicians that I've played with, you know, and I was, I'm really chuffed that I can say that, but at yeah. that time I didn't, you know, and yeah. um, but I remember there was a particular couple of guys at Metropolis who, I kind of, um, you know, I guess befriended and got on really well with a guy called Andy Wright, mm-hmm. who's a producer, and a guy called Al Stone. And mm-hmm. both of those guys, thankfully, really looked out for me and said they would keep keep me in mind. But you never really knew if that was kind of that's something they were definitely going to do. But they did, about a year after the Bully Rag, Bully Rag broke up, I ended up doing a session... Um, for both of them, they they were working together. It was with an mm-hmm. artist called, he was called Riyadh, and mm-hmm. he was signed, uh, I think River Horse Music via Sony or something. And I did this, uh, I did this session at Great Linford Manor Studios in Milton Keynes with. Uh, it was there were some really great guys. Gus Isidore from Seals Band was on oh, guitar, wow, okay. and uh, Kenji Suzuki who plays guitar for Simply Red. Mm-hmm, there was a bass mm-hmm. player called Chris Taylor who Andy Wright used a lot. Mm-hmm. And then there was some bloke from Bully Rag. And they basically took a chance on me. That All those guys were more, I think, well-known for being session musicians, but I right. wasn't. But they took, I guess they took a chance on me, you know. And mm-hmm. I think when people show um, their trust in you, it, it really can do great things for you, you know, that someone's actually believes in you, you know. Absolutely. And it was a it was a great time, and it was a, it was a good session. And, um, yeah, that led to doing stuff with Al. Al Stone kind of got me involved with um, with uh, with this guy called Sebastian Rogers via my friend Johnny Cole in Norwich, and we did a really cool EP together. So I, I guess I, even though it was only a couple of album projects, that got my toe dipped into the water of you know being outside of a band, you know. And I guess, and, and you're recording, so you're making records. So you went kind of straight into a band doing a project, and then from there you sort of like put yourself forward. As from a session perspective, but more, I guess, looking for sort of work playing on records and playing and doing that mm. type of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but the real kind of, I think, the thing that really, um, without a shadow of a doubt, elevated and helped me was again like a previous sort of um, friend and uh, sort of music business colleague that I had was a guy called Martin O'Shea who lives mm-hmm. in Liverpool, who managed Bully Rag when I first joined the band. Mm-hmm. And although he didn't manage the band, as the band went into the record um, deal phase, you know, I was still, you know, sort of in loose contact with Martin. Mm-hmm. And Martin was managing at that at the time that um, the band broke up. He was managing Atomic Kitten. Right, and, right. And I guess it was a random 
left field kind of phone call from what I'd been doing with Bullywag, but I phoned Martin and said, listen, mate, I don't know if you've heard, but the bands broke up and if if there's ever any live opportunity with any of your bands that you're managing, I would love to, you know, I would love to be involved and, you know, if, if you would consider me, it'd be great, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he, and, and I sort of said, obviously, I know you're doing Atomic Kitten and if you ever want a live band for that, he said, well, you know, I'll, I'll definitely keep you in mind. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. um... I think it was about a month later, the single Hole Again, which became a, a you know, a, 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 I think it became number one for two or three weeks. Yeah, Tommy yeah. Kitten, that was a big, I mean, for people that don't know, Tommy Kitten were a big band at the time and Hole Again was a massive record. Mm. It was, yeah. It kind of had that Fuji's Killing Me Softly feel, didn't it? Do you yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, that's right. But, <laughs> it was a little jam, I swear to God, it was. <laughs> so I got a call from Martin to say, listen, the girls have been asked to do Top of the Pops next Thursday. He went, oh, great, I'll tune in. He said, no, no, I wanted to do it. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> So it was, he got me, um, uh, Liverpudley and uh, musicians called uh, Kieran Bell on keyboards, a guy called Pemo, Gordon Pemberton on bass, another Scouse guy, and um, Stuart Kershaw, who's actually a drummer, for mm-hmm. orchestral uh, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, mm-hmm. uh, but but he actually plays he actually plays keys, but also wrote Hell Again. So oh, wow. it was us guys and a, a girl called Jennifer John, and we all went down to do Top of the Pops with the girls. It was no track, it was just live. And um, oh wow! And it was a, you know it was a big thing as as you know, Kojo. Top of the Pops is kind of the holy grail, or was the holy grail in the UK for stuff. Absolutely, like that. absolutely. I mean, I didn't even play, and you and you guys were playing live, like live, as in live. Yeah, like, like live, live. Like, <laughs> live, live. What, like real, really playing <laughs> the instruments? Wow. Not like, not like halfway live, like fully live, all the way out live. <laughs> not a little bit in, a little bit out, fully live. <laughs> nice. So, um, so, but what I didn't know was that because of the success of the single, Mm-hmm. And um, that appearance that Martin wanted to do a tour um, with the girls, and he subsequently said, "You know, would you like to be a part of the tour? You know, um, with the girls." And I was like, "I'd love to. That'd be amazing." He says, mm-hmm. "Well, is um, we're actually bringing in a musical director um, mm-hmm. for the tour." I'm like, "Oh, here we go. Okay, that's me going." <laughs> <laughs> Captain Negative, I was like thinking yeah. it, was going, it, was going, it was going so well. Um, but Martin said, listen, I've said to the MD that we've hired for the job, you know, um, we, you know, he, he basically, like, we now both know that MDs, more often than not, you know, pulling people that they know and they trust and they know what can be done on the gig and, you know, just friendships or mm-hmm. just, you know, just there's various reasons. So I now know what happened was actually not very common, you know what I mean? And, and I, I really thank this guy for this. But he said, so the MD is called Mike Stevens. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. At the, the time, legendary. I, I, the legendary. legendary. Yeah, <laughs> that is. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I'd never heard of Mike's name or I didn't know anything about MDs and stuff. But he mm-hmm. said he's going to come up to Liverpool and he's going to kind of check you guys out. And, you know, if everything works out, um, you know, um, you guys will keep the gig. But if for whatever reason... Um, he's obviously going to have to bring, you know, some of, some of his own guys. So, so which, which sounded fair enough to me. What I do know now is kind of odd that that Mike and the guitar player and the keyboard player that he 
and the programmer that he brought up from London. He's your friend. Our mutual friend, Mikey Choi, was the programmer for it. <laughs> okay. So, so Mike yeah. Stevens, Julian Emery on guitar, yeah. um, Simon Carter was the keyboard player, uh-huh. and Mikey Choi, they all came up to Liverpool. Now, I didn't realise that wasn't normal, that, that a London, yeah, yeah. London-based session guys would jump on a train and come to Liverpool for rehearsals. It's usually, as we know, London London is the mothership of all things as far as you know business and work. So, sure, sure. So Mike and these guys came up for a jolly, and there's kind of you know me, Pemo, and Kieran, and you know, <laughs> and um, just just thankfully, mate, you know, and I guess I was quietly confident, but you you never know what somebody's looking for or whether they you know they wanted that situation to happen. But I have to say that Mike was immediately really cool about things, and I guess he liked how we played, and and um, you know we I think we struck, sort of struck up a good. Um, you know, sort of friendship and musical friendship doing that, mm-hmm. doing that gig together. So, yeah, that was the that was that was definitely what I considered to be my introduction into being, um, I guess, a, a, a live session player because that led me to my first freelance kind of session drummer tour. You know. Yeah, sure. That's amazing, man. For people that don't know, I mean, I'm sure most people do. But Mike Stevens at that particular time, and even still, is just he's an amazing music director. Um, at that particular time as well, he music directed tons of bands tons of acts um take that he's still he's still md's take that which he's done for what over 20 years now or something like that yeah yeah the whole long career. Time. take that um you know gary barlow annie lennox i mean tons of people he's just one of the premier people he gave me my first shot as a musician and also as a music director so um much love for mike yeah, and um definitely you know, mate big love to mike you know he was i mean um it's weird to look back and think about it, but I can't I can't deny that for me, meeting Mike was a definitely a golden ticket. You know, I mean mm. it was like it's, it's like I was Charlie up in Liverpool <laughs> and Mike <laughs> arrived Mike arrived with a golden ticket to the to the kind of a way in to the kind of industry, you know, in London uh, without having to move there, you know, which is Yeah, it just goes to show you how important it is um to maintain good relationships with people because you never know where one thing is going to lead you know it's like you say golden ticket but you kind of had connected several dots in different ways over different time periods that kind of led you to that place you know and um it's like that wouldn't have happened unless you left the right kind of impression on people unless you made the right kind of built the right type of relationship with people and again it's like you said mike could have easily gotten somebody else but you obviously left a good impression on him also in regards to i guess so mate i guess so yeah but it was a great it was a great tour to do and it definitely gave me coming out at the end of that tour it gave me the confidence to to know that it was something that i was comfortable with and could potentially you know move forward and and kind of do more um, freelance stuff you know and then yeah so so, so, I, so i guess doing that you then saw that as okay i've gone from this band phase i could see doing this session musician thing touring getting paid for, for working yeah. and playing drums for people you saw that as another direction I did, and while I was while I was just wrapping up um, the tour with Atomic Kitten, mm-hmm. in fact, I think I was just sort of finishing the tour with him. I I got a call from Andy Wright, the guy that I mentioned to you before about doing the Riyadh album, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, Andy said, "Hey man, how are you doing?" I said, "Oh, I'm good. I'm just wrapping up a tour with Atomic Kitten." He was like, "Oh, cool. I've just uh, funny enough, I've just done their their next single, um, Eternal Flame, you know, the Bangles cover." I was like. All right, great, yeah. 
And uh, he said, yes, yeah, f- funny that, you know, there's a connection with that. He said, I'm actually ringing about um, a potential session that I might, that you might be interested in. I'm like, all right, great. Um, yeah, what is it? He said, um, well, he said, you know, I produced Jeff Beck's last record. I went, yeah. He said, <laughs> uh, he said well, I'm, I've just been, um, I've just had the call to do the next album. I said, oh, mate, great. I can't, can't wait to hear that. He said, well, that's what I'm calling you about. I'd like you to play on that. I'm like, what? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for anyone that is uninitiated with Jeff Beck's guitar work, he's, he's, uh, for me, he's like the greatest guitar player in the world. And he's so respected right. by so many people. Oh, absolutely. As, Jeff Beck as is you incredible. Know. I mean, that's a, that, that's a complete, that's a legend. The people yeah. don't know who Jeff Beck, Jeff Beck is, do your research. That is an absolute yeah. legend. In music. So I thought, <laughs> I thought Andy had got the wrong number, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because, again, anyone that kind of is into their drummers and knows about their past of, you know, Jeff Beck, he's always had some of my favorite drummers. He's worked with, like, Terry Bozio, Vinnie mm-hmm. Colliuta, Simon Phillips, Narada Michael Walden. Mm-hmm. I mean, man, the list is endless. I mean, you know, so many great, great drummers. Andy Gangadin, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I was like, okay. He said, but I said, I'm not really like a full-on fusion drummer. He said, well, that's not the record we're making. It's just mm-hmm. big, heavy beats, kind of like like Jeff doing Jeff's thing. But from a drummer point of view, it's more like Chemical Brothers, Prodigy, quite heavy, industrial, funky, hip-hop kind of stuff. I'm like, great, I'm in. So he said... You know, I think that was in a month's time after I'd finished the Tommy Kitten tour, and I, yeah, I went down to Metropolis, funnily enough, again, and I did that record, which was just the best, you know what I mean? And I got on well with Jeff, and it was a great, great, great experience. I think it's great that you, I didn't even realize some of this stuff, but it's just great to have that balance of, like, recording and live work um, in your repertoire. And if you're doing it with people of that caliber, it just like speak, speaks volumes about your kind of musicality overall. Not everybody can do that or gets the opportunity to do that. So um, that's fantastic, man. Well, again, it goes back to what I was saying before of just being given um, the, when someone believes in you, you can show yourself in different you know ways. And I, you know, I don't consider myself a master of all styles. You know what I mean? There's people that, are really phenomenal at one particular thing. And I think I'm a, you know, I think, I think I've learned a lot over the last kind of 20 years since the band broke up and I've been mm-hmm. doing freelance stuff that I guess I've got a particular way of playing, you know, but I try and but obviously you can't play like that for every single person, you know? So no, I'm, I think again, just having Andy Wright show me the, again, cause it's Jeff Beck. So really Andy probably should, you know, should probably put up a name of someone who's massive, but, you know, I was just the guy who had been in a Liverpool band and then been out with Atomic Kitten. I mean, you know, I couldn't really tell Jeff Beck that I'd just done that. But But you know what, Kojo, while I was there, and again, it was just right place, right time, luck, whatever you want to call it, but Jeff, we'd wrapped up doing the rhythm tracks there and we were hanging out and he said, well, he said, you've done a great job. He said, funnily enough, I've just had a, a call to do three nights at the Royal Festival Hall um, mm-hmm. as a career retrospective thing. And, um, you know, with different guests, me playing, you know, bits of bits of kind of music from all of my you know career, but then with guests, guest singers and guest artists, I'm like, fantastic. I'm, I'm coming down to that. He said, well, no, I'd like, I was wondering if you'd like to be the house drummer because we need a, we need a house band drum. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I couldn't wow. believe it. He said, are you wow. up for it? And of course I said, yes. You know, like, sure. yeah, I'd love to. Um, and went back to Liverpool 
and got sent the set list of songs and had a complete meltdown, (laughs) like (laughs) insecurity overload of like listening to, you know, stuff of Jeff's career with Simon Phillips or Terry Bozio or Vinnie Cosby and thinking, how am I going to? I'm going to yeah. replicate this stuff. And I don't mind sharing with you now because I I got to the other side of that day. But at one point, I got myself in such a state in my own <laughs> kind of um, rehearsal period that I didn't even want to step foot into Jeff's rehearsal room unless I knew I could nail it. Right, especially, right, when I got right. told, especially when I got, I got told the band was Randy Hope Taylor on bass, the great oh, Jennifer yeah. Batten on guitar, you know, from Michael Jackson and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um uh, Tony Hymas on keys. It was a really great kind of house band, you know. Wow. Um, wow. But I I expressed my insecurities to the manager, uh, uh-huh. Ralph Ralph Baker, and said, "Listen, Ralph, I can't believe I'm doing <laughs> this, but I'm really I'm just not sure I'm going to be able to cut this." And I actually made this call, Kojo, and said, "I really I hate to do this to you guys, you know. I think it was two weeks before the rehearsal was to start, and I did it, and I said I just really don't think." I can, you know, I, I just really don't think I can kind of go through with all the stuff. Some of the stuff I'm fine with, but certain things it's just right beyond me. You know, I just think mm-hmm. fusion wise, it might catch me out. And he said, well, all right, Steve. He said, well, I'm sure you'd be fine. I'll speak to Jeff and see what he says. You know, now listen to me sitting here now, if I was Jeff Beck and <laughs> a, a, a pretty much new drummer was on the phone saying he was nervous about doing it, as we all know, you know, while every single person on stage is vital and important, people rely on the solidity and the confidence of a drummer. If you've got a drummer phoning up saying, I'm quite nervous <laughs> about working with you, you'd think I would have been dropped immediately. But Ralph called me back like an hour later and said, I spoke to Jeff. He says, don't worry about it. He'll see you a week on Monday. So, but wow. I, and so I ended up going down and it worked out an absolute treat, mate. I mean, Terry Bozio came over as a special guest drummer and mm-hmm. took a little bit of the weight of the more fusion-esque kind of stuff that they were doing right, um, right. From, from Jeff's guitar shop period. But, mate, I, I did it and I was so proud of me, myself and the way I played and pulled it off. And I got to work with your mum on that gig. It's just dawned on me. Wow. Okay. <laughs> because so um, you, 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 you work with my mom before you work with me then? Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> so on that gig, there was um, so obviously Jeff playing his repertoire, but mm-hmm. on the various nights we had Roger Waters, who your mum was singing back and vocals for at the time. The right, great P, right, right. The great P.P. Arnold, if people don't know who I'm talking <laughs> about. She's not just oh, called yeah. mum, she's called P.P. Yeah. Arnold. <laughs> so exactly. I was aware of her. So Roger Waters was there, which was another huge kind of tick for me. John McLaughlin, the great, you know, Mana Vishnu Orchestra guitar player. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Imogen Heap. Uh, there was Paul Rogers from Free and Bad Company. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a lot of men. I'm probably thinking missing people. Oh, the White no. Stripe. The White. Mate, it was a, it was a show, and it was three nights of hold on to your hats, and it was some great music to play, mate. And um, sure, yeah. How would you like? It's interesting though, because those are like I think that like it's very difficult. I think for maybe some people nowadays to understand how, how those were serious heavy heavy hitters you've got people yeah. there that are like these are people that have not just been successful for two three four years these are people that have been successful for like decades and you know and people that have kind of um, made you know real legendary impressions on music um as a whole and you were kind of in there kind of doing that that must have been rewarding as fuck 
in the mid-series. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, I was I was going to say fudge, but yeah, fuck it. <laughs> no, it was, mate. It was. It was incredible. And just again, to even be at that table, I guess, from where you were kind of coming from, just to kind of wind up from, like, I guess, like I said, from from being in the band to then being a person that's kind of capable of playing with all these people I and know. doing these type of things. I couldn't believe it, mate. And it was a great it was a great opportunity and it was a, it was a learning curve. And, you know, I remember, like I said, in the build up to that, I remember, you know, I don't mind admitting this stuff, man. I broke down to my wife. I was quite emotional about it, you know, and said, listen, mm-hmm. if I, if I pull this off Mel, you know, <laughs> I said, it really, I really believe it could elevate my career to the next level. This is why I'm so kind of angsty and worried about it. And she understood. Mm-hmm. And there's no two ways about it. Me, me, me doing that Jeff Beck gig, really helped me get to the next sort of phase of my career. I mean, and I don't mind sharing this with you, with you and your audience that, you know, sometimes we're, we're lucky enough to get a guest ticket and, but not many, you know, and um, yeah. on that, on that Royal Festival Hall thing, I think I managed to get a couple for my mum and dad. They came one day. Uh-huh. My good friend, George Frederick from the drum company that I was with at the time came down. Uh-huh. And then the final, I got Mike Stevens in and I, and I, and uh-huh. I don't mind admitting that I thought, I really want Mike Stevens as a as a successful MD to see me mm-hmm. play with Jeff Beck, and you know I I you know I wanted him to come because he was a friend by then by that time. Mm-hmm. But equally, I was proud of what I was doing with Jeff, and I wanted Mike to see it. And and Mike came down, and I I guess he was I guess he was very sort of um sort of pr- um proud of me and was impressed by what I'd done because it was. Six months after that, he called me for the Annie Lennox gig that he was then going to MD. Wow. And wow. I think without a shadow of a doubt, even though he'd seen me and I guess thought I'd done a good job with Atomic Kitten, seeing mm. me on stage with Jeff Beck and Roger Waters and all those people showed me to Mike in a different light. And um, yeah. So and that's, he called you up to do, play for Annie Lennox, who at the time... Well, I, yeah, Annie Lennox is a legend. Anybody doesn't know that. Annie Lennox is a complete legend. Eurythmics, Annie Lennox, I mean, they've been legends for, again, many decades. And at that particular time, she was still huge. You know what I mean? Still huge. So that is yeah. a massive ball. Um, yeah. Just, you know what? Just even just hearing you say that, I, I, there's so many, like, amazing takeaways for me because it's like... <sighs> you... you People don't people don't kind of appreciate sometimes that it's really is. Look, many many are called, but the chosen a few when it comes to these things. And when you have your opportunities, you have to seize them. You have to kind of you know perform correctly, do the right things, or else that might be the only thing you do. But as well as that, you have to kind of think you know smart, be smart about um, how you're kind of planning your career and the things that you want to do because it's like you you bringing Mike down to that is is genius. It's actually, it's actually genius because it's kind of like that's where you want somebody to see you. Want somebody that could potentially hire you for different work to see you playing with some of the best musicians and best artists in the world. If you have that opportunity, why wouldn't you take that? Why why wouldn't you do that? And I kind of like I often as an MD now myself, I always tell people, you know, if 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 you got something, if you got a gig, get me down to it. And I think that people sometimes. Sometimes they ask, sometimes they don't. But the other, the thing that people really do, which I find frustrating, is people have a tendency to call me after they've come off tour, and they'll yeah. be like, "Yo, man, just letting you know, man, I just finished a great year tour playing with X, Y, and Z, and we did this, that, oh, we did Wembley, we did fucking O2, we did." I'm like, 
why you ain't call me to see you? I've never seen you play. Like, what's the mm-hmm. point of calling me after the gig? It's like, the fuck am I supposed to do? Just like, you know, it's, it's like, I would have hey, loved Coach, to- hey, hey, Coach, you come and watch me wiggle the bins out on Monday. <laughs> like, that's not going to, that's not yeah. going to inspire you, is it, at all? Let's face it. And I'm like, why didn't you get me down to the actual show so I could see you play in all your glory? It's like, I'll be able to tell a lot more seeing that than fucking sitting down talking to you over a cup of coffee. Do you know what I mean? This doesn't make any yeah. sense. So I think that made a lot of sense for you to do that. Like get somebody down. If, you, if you're doing an important show or whatever, you know, whatever, get somebody down who might be able to help you or might be able to kind of, if you want to do that type of work, who can get you more of that type of work, you know, makes well, exactly. sense. Plus, plus I knew Mike was a big fan of Jeff Beck and obviously he just wanted to see the gig as well, but it was definitely on my part. So many you know, reasons. So many reasons. <laughs> and all the ones that we haven't mentioned, you know, like, yeah. but it was, um, but it, but, you know, I think I think that led Mike to just see me in a slightly different light. It's always hard to say what, how you know what what causes a situation, but I can only I can only guess that him seeing me do that showed me in a different light to doing a pop gig. You know, and a pop gig, as we both know, is very important as well. There's different strengths to to that as well. But um, but yeah, but doing that with Mike was great. I must admit, doing doing Annie Alex was a whole. It was it was it was a wonderful time. You know. I think really? that what it is, you know, I think that we like, I think people that know about music and love music who have a genuine love for music. There's, I think music sits within different tiers or different frameworks. There's some music that's kind of just for a bit of fun. You know what I mean? Which can be, can be good music, but it can still just be fun. There's other music that kind of hits you in a different way. That's a bit more serious. Maybe you have a bit more of a long-term connection to it. And I think that for lack of a pr- better term, is classed as, you know, real music or serious music, so to speak, as opposed to a pop thing. So I think that sometimes see- somebody seeing you playing in that type of context, it does give it just, just a different kind of impression. It gives a different view um, so. of you. And I think as well as that, though, you know, I actually think that from my perspective, I think it's important for people to see that you're doing other things too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, it's easy for people to, you know, for example, he brings you into a atomic kitten and then the next day he's coming to watch you do Jeff Beck and that's nothing to do with him. So he's thinking to himself, he must be thinking to himself, fuck is this dude? You know, what the fuck mm-hmm. has he got going on? How's he got, mm-hmm. I, I think it's good for people to see you doing other things. And I often kind of like look at that. Like sometimes if I'm working with particular musicians, I, I don't just think about what they do on my gigs. I'm thinking of like, okay, well, who else is fucking with him? Who else is using him? Who else is kind of like, and you kind of look at people's overall kind of career and the way they're doing things. So I think that that is hugely impressive. You know, I think that, yeah. so, so, so I think that for him to see that was great. Um, Definitely was. Yeah. It was yeah, and I think, yeah. as, and you mentioned doing Annie Lennox. I mean, I, I just think even, even just before we even talk, there's so much we could talk about, but even <laughs> just those kind of like things that you've mentioned, those artists, it's like, I think that the quality level of those gigs, people have to understand it's like, you do those gigs and that, that carries so much weight for so long. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not easy to get gigs like that. And I think that like, I think that the only, I think the most modern day equivalent to somebody like Annie, Annie Lennox, you would have to say like Adele, you know what I mean? Really? I guess so. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah. People forget yeah. that Annie Lennox was that big. So it's kind of like, you know, if it's like, if somebody says, Oh, I was playing for Adele, it's like, well, <laughs> you you you, you have any gig like like like, there's nobody in the world that wouldn't want that so i think that that's um 
that would that you must have been over the moon to get that game. Mate, How did I, that was com- of- I was completely over the moon to get that. And the, weirdly, I mean, I say weirdly that 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 came at a time when I wasn't kind of as like I didn't know Mike was getting that gig. It wasn't like it was a it wasn't like some underground thing that Mike's going to be emptying their gig and you need to put yourself up for it. I, I don't think I even knew he was doing it. So the call came out of the mm, blue, mm. and mm. um. At the time, my dad wasn't well. He was having a triple heart bypass. So my mind was like, it wasn't, wasn't kind of, my mind wasn't in the zone of like trying to get the next gig. My, my mind was like, is my dad going to continue to be alive? You know? So, so I remember Mike, Mike sort of calling me in and around that time. And, you know, um, you know, um, it was weird. There was, there was no audition for the anything. And she just wanted Mm -hmm. to meet people. So I guess immediately she'd, um, just put her trust into Mike and trusted his judgment of the musicianship and what they could do. And I think, mm-hmm. and he told her that obviously I'd just been working with Jeff Beck and that, that held. Bingo. <laughs> okay. Like, that's fine. Yes. yes like, Mike drop. Yeah. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, but we just had to go up to, um, you know, I had to travel down to London just to go to Annie's house to meet her. And it was mm-hmm. literally just, um, we just went to her home and it sort of, you know, we just had a conversation and we, she played some of her, um, her new album at the time, which was called Beer, B-A-R-E. Mm-hmm. It was 2003. Mm-hmm. Man, this interview is going to be long, by the way. <laughs> we were here in no, 2003. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Cancel Christmas. No, no, um, yeah. but, we'll definitely do it. We'll definitely make it a double episode for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yes. Whatever you need to do, but basically, yeah. So uh, I remember listening to the album with Annie, and and I kind of that led to, you know, um, I went to the Nam show that year. I got fortunate enough that Premier Drums took me to the Nam show, and I remember, oh, okay. yeah, it was my first time going to the states, and you know the jet lag thing that you obviously know about. In the middle of the night, my phone rang. Mike just rang me in the middle of the night. <laughs> it's like Steve is Mike. Mike Stevens are like, all right, Mike, yeah, what's up? He said, uh, you got the gig. Uh, do what? Yeah, wow. Get the gig with Annie. We're like, all right, good night. <laughs> he 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 later told me that he thought I wasn't kind of like as excited as he hoped I was. Um, yeah, I should yeah, have been, yeah. But, wow. But mate, it was a wow. great it was a great time, you know, um, to play that Eurythmics material and to play that Annie Lennox solo material and the band. You know, again, Mike had put a really nice band together, and I was playing with people that I feel, you know, um, again, if you're putting um, particular groups of people and musicians that you raise your game, you know. And for example, you know Paul Turner and Tony Remy, oh, such man. a great players, man. And um, yeah. so that I think that helped, you know, elevate and at least give me confidence, you know, or more confidence, you know. I mean, we had, but, I mean, we had seven weeks rehearsal. I remember that, which is unheard of <laughs> these days. Man, man, man that's crazy. <laughs> that's great. But I mean. Even still, though, for people that like Paul Turner, I mean, tell people a little bit about Paul Turner. Jesus Christ. I yeah, really begin. So Paul Turner is a phenomenal bass player that is for the, I think, the last 10 years, maybe longer, has been playing for Jamiroquai. So right. we all That's know right. that that holds a massive respect as a bass player. But Paul worked right. with Mike Stevens on Take That. So Paul was the original bass player um, for Take That. And he's over the years, he's done a ton of pop stuff. He's done... Ronan Keaton and I think Boyzone and oh man, Paul's done so much stuff. So to play with him, 
Yeah, he's and, one and of the great British bass players, or great, well, not British. He's one of the great bass players in the world. I think that's right. That's right. And Tony Remy as well. Tony Remy's like a guitar genius. I mean, mm. he had his own solo records, um, mm-hmm. kind of a bit more jazz fusion, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And I later found out that Tony was at the Jeff Beck gig, so he'd already seen me play, which I kind of guess ties things in and. As far as him working with someone that he'd never heard of, at least he had seen me play with Jeff and was comfortable. But it was a good band. Adam Waitman was on keyboards, another great player, great guy, mm-hmm. hilarious. Mm-hmm. And Bernie mm-hmm. Smith. And then we had we had Carol Kenyon, Claudia Fontaine, God bless her, who's no longer with us. And mm-hmm. we had Beverly Skeet. So those three on backing vocals, it was a serious... Wow. Serious kind of um, you know people to be sharing your time with. Um, Absolutely. And Absolutely. Annie, mate, Annie was just... And he's just like so emotive and powerful and raw and every performance that she does, you never feel that she's treading water. She's so, you know, such a great singer. I loved, you know, I love playing with her. Did you learn a lot on that gig musically? I think so. I think mm-hmm. I'm a hard hitter and mm-hmm. that gig in places definitely needed um, some kind of hard hitting solidity. But mm-hmm. I think, there was there was some definitely some more tender moments and I think it was quite a dynamic band. So I I learned yeah, I think I learned about you know, I learned a lot about things on that gig. I mean I'm, I am um, yeah, because yeah, I'm just thinking as well, like for you, like I said, coming from the bandy thing, how was it for you adapting to the session thing? I guess you know, in the band you're playing with the same people all the time, whereas in a session band, you're all of a sudden thrown together with musicians and you know, you're kind of making a band in a short space of time. So how did you kind of Still adapting to that way of working and kind of you know that that whole yeah. ethos, so to speak. I I really I just felt like I was always just playing what I felt should be played, unless mm-hmm. an MD or someone would say different. So I always tried to be sympathetic and um, empathetic to the music and and to what the artist and what the MD was kind of looking for. But I always still felt I. And I still remember thinking, oh, man, I'm lucky I'm getting away with still playing this hard or <laughs> rocky on certain things. But I think Annie yeah. liked a bit of an engine-powered kind of rock thing behind her. But mm-hmm. um, I think as far as learning to change or, or adapt from being a band drummer, I think ultimately the, the ultimate thing that, that is the final decision is that it's with the mm-hmm. artist and what they want. That's right. And I really like not, mm-hmm. because one of the things that's tiresome, I'm sure for a lot of people that have been in bands or can imagine is, is the conversation of trying to agree on something. The fact <laughs> in a, in a, in a kind of, in a session musician role, mm-hmm. that's taken away from you. You know, ultimately you're there to serve the song and the artist and the MD and the production. Mm-hmm. So that's your role, you know. So the the bottom line is you have to make them happy, and mm-hmm. if within that you can find happiness within what you're playing, then it's a win win. But I think ultimately, what I I actually really like the fact that not having to, um, you know, sort of better out with a with a with a band and agree on something when that's removed from you, it's actually for me it was a better thing. <laughs> You know. Yeah, because I was going to say, because I guess, well, I guess the previous thing would have been just arguing shit out with Scousers, right? Is that how it happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and li- yeah, and lose me. <laughs> guy against a bunch of Scousers, I had no chance. <laughs> you know, so. Oh man, so just like actually, because you mentioned a few times, how would you describe yourself as a drummer? Like, how would you describe your playing? I think, um, I think I'm solid. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I think I'm versatile. I think I'm a, I could be a hard hitter, mm-hmm. but I think, like I've said just before, I think I'm very sympathetic to the, the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I think I'm a song drummer and mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't say that in a, in a sense that, um, that that's a, that's a weakness. I think that's been a strength of mine and, um, yeah, that's how I see myself. I mean, I think that's great. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I just like to think that I lay down a really solid foundation for the artists and the band, mm-hmm. the musicians that I work for. I mean, one thing I now you've said that you've you've reminded me of something that going into the time that I went into session musicianship and the pop thing, I noticed at the time there was an awful lot of really phenomenal drummers that I respected and do still respect that were you know, um, so coming at the pop thing from more of a, a gospel um, um, sort of chops and I guess playing out a lot more than, say, how I naturally play mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I just didn't have that in my arsenal. So why would I throw out certain, you know, fields and be, I guess, not not busier because mm-hmm. if I say busier, it makes me sound like I'm being disrespectful of people that play a lot. But you know what I mean, Kojo, you know, yeah, drummers yeah. that play out a lot more. And Absolutely. in certain gigs, that really works. I, I remember seeing on TV like Usher or Beyonce's band and going, my goodness, what is that drumming? And I, you know, it's just it's not a type of drumming that I've grown up with. But Yeah, yeah. I, I, so I think that sometimes, if I'm honest, when I was getting into the session thing, I felt a bit insecure that I wasn't, I didn't have that to offer a gig, you know, but what I think what I don't have in that, that respect in the, the, the gospel shops thing, if you want to call it something that I had the solidity and a powerful kind of groove that has kind of pinned things down, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, I, yeah. yeah. But I think that that's like, I think that, um, I think it is important for everybody to have their own lane and their own style, their own, own way of playing, because I think that, Nobody wants people to all play the same, for starters. All music doesn't sound the same, so why should everybody play the same? That doesn't make mm. any sense. Um, I think additionally, though, do you think that your um, background as sort of like um, playing, you know, playing music, playing as a drummer for records and recording, um, do you think that sort of maybe influenced your playing style when you're coming into the live scene? Because no records sound like that. Like, no records of full of busy chops and this and that. No, 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 no shit actually goes like that on record, really. <laughs> Unless it's like specialist type of music, you know what I'm saying? But like in a commercial sense, you don't really hear drumming like that. So as you were already sort of like a recording drummer, do you think that influenced the, the kind of the style that you took into your live work? I think so, yeah. Again, mm. though, that's just naturally how I, how I kind of saw fit to play the particular songs that I'd be playing with different artists but i think the studio uh, having the um the ability or the the opportunity to go into a studio i really love that and but as my career has gone on i've done while i have played on a bunch of studio stuff that i'm very proud of Mm -hmm. i've definitely had way more live work than i have studio work that's just the way my career has gone and i'm and i'm really happy with that you know um but i do love the creative ability of you know that kind of blank canvas of creativity that you can do in a studio you know um sure, and sure, sure actually sure. i remember doing a sugar babes thing with you we did a cover version of come together by the beatles do you remember that 
<laughs> do remember that actually i do yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That. that was a vibe so, I, I remember that, that. Vibe. we did our, i mean you know no one touches the beatles stuff and yeah but, but at the same time there's no reason why you couldn't celebrate it but i remember we did that together and yeah. so yeah so i again i think yeah the studio thing would definitely inspire my kind of like the way i play live but i guess ultimately what you just said there is that often stuff is not played that kind of crazy on record so i think i often listen to the records and the mp3s that i'd be sent before mm-hmm. a tour and ultimately you know try and honor what's on the record and then i guess just add a bit of whatever might be needed on top of that you know i, I think I, I think it's well i think it's i think you have to i think everything is gig specific too so i think that with those with those type of gigs you're talking about and the type of um music that that was you know you have to play the way that's appropriate for those gigs you know what i mean it's kind of like mm. it'd be different if you were doing like say, if you were doing an ariana grande gig then you'd play different than if you were doing a you know an annie lennox gig it's just mm-hmm. it's kind of common sense it's completely different music um Absolutely. i think um from my point of view as well it's like i um i kind of came into the live world definitely at a later stage of my career. So I was more, I would say, influenced by studio music and studio working and producing. And also the things that I listened to were more studio-based. So I I wasn't even, I mean, when I first met you guys, I wasn't even really fully aware of this whole sort of like live world in brackets that kind of fucking existed. You know what I mean? I didn't know that you had like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it sounds like a strange thing to say because I grew up in it, but I was aware of it. But like, I think particularly in pop music, I wasn't really in touch with how sort of like live music was so different from the record and how certain styles of kind of doing gigs had been popularized. And I think that, like you said, like your Ushers and Ariana Grande's and even Britney Spears and you know, there was a certain way that sort of like pop R&B gigs were kind of done at that time that, you know, it was a big deal, very gospel influence, but that's not the only way to do a gig. Like you said, there's a, there's so many different approaches. And I think that all of them have to be looked at, understood and appreciated because, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? Absolutely. Mm, mm, mm. (laughs) so like um so just quickly man um so um what we're gonna do um we're gonna take a little pause right there and um yeah i'm gonna come back to you and talk to you a little bit more about some of your um session work and the things you do hope you enjoyed the first part of this conversation far too much history and info to cram into one episode so we've made it a double please download part two and check it out enjoy enjoy